Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. But is that really what it means? Isn't it really, isn't something different on the screen? Doesn't it say the need for good apologetics? Now, what do I mean by good apologetics? It means, yes, factual. That's a great answer. One of the best answers I've ever had. Thank you. Things which correspond to reality. The truth. Because just as there are good apologetics, there are bad apologetics. And we need to dispel some of that falsehood surrounding it. I have in subtitles up there, don't be apologetic over apologetics. Some people think apologetics is saying you're sorry that you believe in Jesus. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me share with you today my belief. And we live in a very apologetic society, and yet that is not what apologetics means. But before we proceed further, I was just wondering, could we just stop and pray together? I can't really teach until I ask the Lord to bless our time. Pray with me, saints. Father God, in the matchless name of Messiah Jesus, we give you the praise, the honor, and the glory this morning here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields. Lord, a message like this can offend some people. Some people can take it the wrong way, have a misunderstanding, Lord. And right now, we ask that you will quiet down our busy hearts and our busy minds to hear from you all that there is to receive here today. Father God, you intimately and intricately know every human heart that has come in here, and you know what every heart needs. So I pray that you would fill us, teach us, bless us, and help us to understand and digest this message, Father God for your glory and not ours. And Lord, we love you because you've loved us first. And we ask this all in the matchless name of Messiah. And all of God's family said, amen. Amen. All right, so today is going to be a little bit like being in school. Does everyone love school? School? Yeah, you know you love school. Don't argue. All right. It, It is, there's a lot of Bible in here, but think of this day as almost like a training session. And because it's going to be a training session, I want to freely give you the opportunity to cash in further. Pastor Joe said you can go to the live stream and you can watch it again, right? Awesome. Praise God for technology. When technology works, I love it. And when technology doesn't work, man, I want it to. You, my, you can clearly see my emails right up there. Pastor J at ccob.org. I will send you this whole presentation. This is my PowerPoint and I can do whatever I want with it. I'll ask you to do one thing. Just be respectful. Don't go in and change it and like post it on like one of those bad preacher sites and be like, look at this jerk. Look at all the stuff he's saying. Don't, don't go change all the content because then I'll have to go back and we'll be in like some kind of Facebook debate. And I hate those things. It's just for yours. It's for personal enrichment. And I gave you six websites up there that I think are approved, solid, evangelical, apologetic websites that you should be using. They're at your, you know, they're at your disposal. So if you want to use them, use them. But the first thing I want to really get into is, I think some people really don't understand apologetics. And they think it's some kind of like made-up weird thing, and it's not. It's, it's in the Bible. Apologia. It's actually a biblical word, and it actually means defense. It, it doesn't just show up in, in 1 Peter 3.15. Everyone thinks that's like the car blanche. Well, you only got it once, pastor. No, 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 no. No, not just once. It, it's, it shows up more than once. It even shows up in 2 Timothy 4.16. And here it's a judicial term. It's not a defensive, take an attack kind of position. Not military. It's more judicial. It's from the Greek word, again, it's apologia. It's, it's apo and it's logia. And so it's away or from, and the word that can mean either speech or word. And so it's literally a word away from. And you think a word away from, that doesn't make any sense. Well, try translating any language into another language. What it literally means is verbal defense. That's really what it means more than anything. So, therefore, apologetics is the branch of Christian theology that deals with the verbal defense of the Christian faith. Now, don't you feel better? Say, it's not a reason to go out there and be argumentative. There are your very argumentative apologists. I'm not one of them. I don't think that that's... I don't think that is what God would have us to do. But I think we should be doing it, which means why should we do it? 
simply because Christianity is under such attack by Satan, this world, and the evil intentions of carnal men. All right? Christianity, the faith we hold so dear, is under attack. We do not live on a playground. We live on a battleground. Okay? It's a battlefield. It's not a playground. And we need to understand that. And this message isn't to scare anyone. I'm loud. I'm sorry. I'm Italian. You know, you have an Italian here in the pulpit all the time. We speak with our hands and we're loud and it's just kind of who we are. Pastor Joe is a lot more reserved for, for, than I am. Pray for me. Someday I hope to get to his level of, of reservation. I'm just, I'm the loud guy who doesn't get invited back a lot. That's okay, though. You only need to hear from me once. It's the truth. But we, we need to know this much. Good apologetics need to exist just because we're under such attack. We need to have a good defense. Anyone play here? Anyone here play high school football? I did. I hurt my knees really bad, too. Okay, really? That's it? I only got a couple ball players in here? Man, this, this usually goes so much more swimmingly in New Jersey. My coach used to say it all the time. A good defense is a great offense. If you can hold the other team at bay, you give your team a greater chance to score. All right? This isn't being about nasty. It's about being well-equipped. It's about being armed. It's about being ready. But Christianity is attacked by mostly pseudo-Christian cults. And that's what I like to call them. Pseudo-Christian cults. Because they're not Christians. They're cults. A cult is any organization which breaks away from a mother or, or parent faith system and it, it moves away from the basic tenets of that system. So what are the pseudo-Christian you know, Christian cults? Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian science. They all broke away from Christianity. And then about a thousand other splinter groups that we don't have time to go into. But you have things like, remember the tragedy in Waco? We all remember the wacko from Waco, right? David Koresh. David Koresh said he was the Lamb of God. He truly believed he was the second reincarnation of Jesus Christ. He said so. It's on record. It's not hearsay. We've got video of him. He was absolutely deluded and out of his mind. And the first symptom of psychosis is a Messiah-like complex. Because there's one Messiah. Amen? Amen. All right? David Koresh was not the Lamb of God. He was a crazy person. He ended up getting 74 of his followers killed because he polluted the pure milk of God's word. You have a picture in the middle, and this is the one that makes me the most upset, is Awake Magazine. Now, Watchtower Society, formerly known as Jehovah's Witnesses, have two big ones, all right? They've got a couple big magazines, and they hold them kind of like gospel. Awake is their secondary. It's not their main publication. It's their secondary magazine. And here we have, if you can't read that, it says, Youth Who Put God First. Youth Who Put God first. You would think that's admirable, right? And you would think, wow, it's a great magazine. I'd love a copy of that. And these are hundreds of children who all died because their parents wouldn't let them have a simple operation or a blood transfusion. All right? Youth who put God first. It should say poor children who died because their parents were ignorant. Okay? That's what it should say. Because Jehovah's Witnesses believe that because of Leviticus, Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make you know, sacrifice on the altar. And there's a prohibition in Levitical law to not eat blood, and it's true. I can tell you this much. Jewish people don't eat blood. They drain their meat out. They go to kosher butchers. Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, if you get a blood transfusion, you're eating blood. To which I think, no, you're not. Not at all. When you eat something, it goes in through your mouth and it goes down your throat and it goes in your digestive system. Eating, consuming, taking in, you're eating. This is a transfusion. This is, this is the thing that is, according to Leviticus 17.11, life-giving. Blood. You need it. It's got to be in here. It is. It is the life of the flesh. And they let all their children die. And then put out a martyr's magazine as, as if this is a thing that's to be commended. And it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that this happens. And why did I speak present tense? Because it's still happening. It's not that it happened and they changed their doctrine. It's still happening. Cult of death, Jim Jones. Does everyone remember that? Yeah, I I was born in 75, so I was just young enough to remember the stir and the ruckus it caused. 914 people 
Forced to drink, cyanide-laced Powerade. It wasn't Kool-Aid. Everyone thinks it's Kool-Aid. It wasn't. It was Powerade. But, you know, drink the Powerade doesn't sound as cool as drink the Kool-Aid. Here's the best part. Does everyone realize that over 100 of those people were children who were forced to drink it and didn't want to? It's a cult of death. And that's unfortunately what the cults do. They sneak in, they spy out our liberties in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then they pervert the truth of the gospel. Every single pseudo-Christian cult, and I mean every single one of them, mess up Jesus, who he is, his purpose, and his plans. Every one of them. Every one of them. Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Jesus is Michael the Archangel. I, don't know where, I still don't know where they get that one from. Okay? Mormonism's worse, you know? He's the good brother of Lucifer, who was the bad brother. Just all messed up. They just, they're always constantly messing up on who Jesus is. And so we are under attack, brothers and sisters. And does everyone know what is the best, what is the best defense against this attack? Knowing God's word. All right? At the heart of all apologetics is to know God's word. If you can detect the real, you'll always spot a fake. And the truth of the matter is when they train bankers, they don't show them a single counterfeit. All they show them is hundreds upon thousands of real, genuine U.S. currency. And the truth is this. You don't show people in training counterfeits because counterfeiters change. They always change. They don't stay the same. They change something else. But if you know how to detect the genuine, when you get the fake, it'll always feel funky. You'll be able to, you don't need to learn counterfeiters' tricks. Just know the genuine to spot the fraud. Also attacked. Also attacked by critics. Although they've fallen out of favor lately, the Jesus Seminar was one of the biggest critical attacks we ever had here in America. And I love the fact that the Jesus Seminar was not made up mostly of scholars. This is the thing that really usually blows people's brains out. They're like, well, but all those credentialed scholars. All the credentialed scholars in L.A. were mostly actors and musicians with a couple scholars. Now, look, my dad likes the arts. In college, he acted. So I guess some of that DNA is in me. I've been a musician since I was 11 years old. But I hate to tell you, actors and musicians should stick to drama and leave theology to theologians and pastors. 82% of the Gospels are allegedly false. 16% are doubtful, leading you to a 98% untrustworthy level. They say Jesus was not God, there was no resurrection, and Jesus was eaten by dogs. What songs they sing on Easter Sunday in their church, I have no idea. Because there is no good news according to the Jesus Seminar. And you're going to love how highly scientific their process was. They had three beads upon every question. They had a white one and a pink one and a red one. And they passed around a plate. And if they thought it was something that was true, the white bead went in. And if they thought it was something doubtful, the pink bead went in. And if they thought something was absolutely not at all conceivable, the red bead went in. And that was the system. Beads. Beads passed around in a hat. Yeah, scientific method. You know, there is one verse in the Bible that they said, beyond the shadow of a doubt, is something Jesus said. And you know what one it was? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Every other statement of Jesus was stricken from the record as untrustworthy or highly suspect. However, being the fact that they were a 501c3, you know, organization that lived on the donations of other, Jesus Christ definitely said at some point in his ministry, it is more blessed to give than receive. If that don't set you off, nothing will. Because then they would take an offering. Okay? Under attack, not only by these, but by all kinds of critics. Christianity is always under attack. It's under attack by our culture. Our culture here in America. At a time where everyone should be loving and accepting and sing kumbaya. It's kumbayotic. We should all get together and share a Coke and hold hands. And agree with everyone. Except for you Christians. I just always find it particularly piquant that you can say you believe in anything. 
anything. I practice kundalini yoga. Uh, I pray to the flying spaghetti monster. Uh, I think Mormonism is awesome, but Jehovah's Witnesses are cool. I'm a Jehovah Mormon. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, cool, cool. Oh, interesting. Mm, oh, cool, nice, interesting. And you go, yeah, I'm, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it's like, oh, no. I said the one thing on the planet that has offended someone. I believe in all the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. I follow him as Lord and Master. And that has offended everyone? Yeah, it offends because it's the truth. And it has a very exclusive message. Absolutely. And you have to have a lot of real gall in your heart to write a book called God is Not Great and put God in two-point font and great in 24-point font. And I'll tell you, I am very sorrowful for Christian Hitchens because he was raised in a Christian household and his brother actually, after years of backsliding, came back to the Lord. And I don't think Chris ever did. And he passed a couple years ago. So I'm going to tell you right now, first-hand personal knowledge, he knows exactly how great God is. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, the worst thing about hell, and I am convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt, and this is part of my own apologetic method in sharing with people who was lost, it's not the outer darkness, it's not the gnashing of teeth, it's not the flames, albeit they may be metaphorical for all we know. We've never been on the spiritual dimension. We've never been there. Because they're flames that don't burn and consume. So there's some metaphor involved without fail. But all of those things, as horrible as they are, that's not the worst thing. Eternally being separated from a loving God, still not the worst thing in my book. I think there's one thing about hell that is by far the worst thing. And you know what it is? Truth learned too late. Trust me. The worst thing about hell will be regret. Truth learned too late. That's the worst thing about hell. It's attacked by other world religions. Because, believe it or not, it's inherent in every human being to want to prove what they believe is the truth. Because who wants to walk around and say, yeah, I'm ignorant and I know it? Well, no one walks around like that. Everyone wants to convince everyone else that they're right. It's, it's actually it's a good thing and a negative thing at the same time. It shows our fallenness. We never want to be wrong, even when we're dead wrong. We never want to be wrong. Just to let you know just how serious this is, let's take a, just a, a brief look at two verses out of the Quran, two surahs. Because the Islamic war on other faiths is prevalent in the Quran. Not hidden, it's not subdued. It's prevalent. Surah 840. And fight with them until there is no more persecution and religious should be only for Allah. And this is why the Muslim attack on every other faith system is not going to stop. Not going to stop. They're commanded not to stop. It says in their holy book, fight with everyone until there's no more persecution for Muslims and all religion should only be for Allah. It's not going to stop, guys. There's no peace talk on the planet that's going to make it stop. They're looking for world domination. You know how you argue with someone who, who is bent on world domination? You know how far that argument goes? The word you're looking for is not far. Not far. Surah 928. This one's way worse. Fight those who do not believe in Allah, nor in the last day, nor do they prohibit what Allah and his apostles have prohibited, nor follow the religion of truth. Fight until they pay the tax in acknowledging of superiority and they are in a state of subjection. The best thing anyone can ever hope for is to have Sharia law come in. You can pay a tax to worship your pagan gods, but in paying that tax, you're admitting to the Islamic heads of state, you are far superior and we are weak and we are under the subjugation of your rulership. So it's either fight and keep fighting or submit and admit defeat. But I can tell you this much. And it's just to, just to wake up people who are living in a state of delirium. Islam will not stop until they conquer the world. Okay? A good and faithful Muslim is commanded. He's commanded in his Bible to jihad, to holy war. If he's reading his Bible, that's what he believes. And I always get the pushback. Well, there's so many peace-loving Muslims in the world. Yeah. Well, they're like all the Christians who don't read their Bible. Those are the Muslims who don't read the Quran. 
Don't get mad at me. I'm giving you the facts. I'm like Joe Friday here. Just the facts, ma'am. Oh, they think it's a religion of peace. No, it's not. Read the whole thing. All right? The Quran was largely written in two stages, in Medina and in Mecca. Okay? He wrote it in two different stages, and that's why you've got some peaceful verses when he thought that he could just keep teaching and everyone would say, hey, man, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Let's all worship Allah. And he met a lot of persecution, and people didn't believe that. His own tribe didn't accept him. And then you've got all the other verses that say, if your enemy offends you, strike off his head. Religion of peace? I think not. I don't think so. So, with the remaining time, I want to roughly run through this outline. We really want to talk about what is apologetics. We want to define it. We want to describe it. We want to talk about the role of apologetics in evangelism because I think that's really where it's at mostly. Apologetics is largely to be part of our evangelism. I want to answer some common objections and I want to talk quickly about why we do it. Are there confirmable results? Well, let's find out. Does the Bible command the use of apologetics? Of course it does. Most certainly. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give a reason, that's the Greek word there, apologia, for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Listen to this verse one more time. You heard it with your ears, now hear it with your heart. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The first thing we need to do is always have Jesus Christ set aside. He's holy. He should be sanctified in our hearts. That's where it starts. It starts in the heart. If you're not sanctifying and setting Jesus aside as holy, well then you're probably not living a very holy life. And what we need to do is to be ready. That means be mentally prepared. Just be prepared to give a reason for people, to the people, when they ask about the hope that's within you. That means Christians, hear me with, with all of my heart. We collectively as a group of followers of the Lord Jesus Christ should be shining so brightly for Jesus Christ that it either scatters people and drives them away or draws people in. And that's what light does. Amen? You turn on the lights, and let me tell you something. Cockroaches scatter. Ask me how I know. I did commercial refrigeration for a really long time before going to ministry, and it's all you need to do is shine a flashlight on the floor. All right? They can't stand it. They run from it, and they hide. That's what the light does to some creatures. But if you hang a light out at night, you'll draw in every moth within a 50-mile radius that can see the glinting of light. So light will drive some insects away, and light will draw other insects in. And I think the metaphor works with humanity. The light will pierce some people because men love their dark deeds more than they love the light, so they run. Yet Jesus also said in John 12, if I be lifted up from the earth, and when he was talking about being crucified, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So just because Jesus is drawing doesn't mean people follow that natural inclination to Jesus. Some people scatter and they rebel and they click in their heels and they fight and other people are drawn. And that's the kind of Christian we want to be. We want to be the kind of Christians that draw people in. They see our works. Let your good works shine before men. That they may glorify God in you and be drawn to see that God is good, to see that he is who he says he is. You're living on a mission. Like Jay Vernon McGee used to say, you're either somebody's mission or you're living on mission. It's one or the other. Either you are a mission, right? You're on mission. You're, you're out there. You're living a missionary-style life to seek and save, right? Jesus wants us to do that, to follow in his footsteps. We're not saving anyone. We're pointing to Messiah who saves. But he wants us to do that. You are on mission or you're someone's mission. Someone's coming after you. And just because you're on mission for Jesus doesn't mean that other counter-missionaries are coming after you. Trust me. Jehovah's Witnesses are looking to convert evangelical believers. That's the number one thing they're taught in their kingdom halls. Find Christians who don't read their Bible very carefully and then tie them up in theological knots. They're trained to do it. You would find this hard to believe, but most Jehovah's Witnesses study the Bible 
mandatorily under their elders two to four hours a day. And I'm not talking about just, you know, reading the proverb of the day and, you know, reading the daily breadcrumbs. I mean the daily bread. Sorry. Someone's here, I love the daily bread. Hey, my mom loves the daily bread. I'm not picking on you. But I tell people, if the daily bread is the only thing you read today, you're in trouble. Okay? That is not a, it's a crumb. It is not enough to sustain you. It's not. It's like snacking on a crouton and then going, no, I'm full. I'm good. Whew. Pasta. No way. I had a crouton an hour ago. I'm good. No, that's not what we want to do. All right? It's not what we need. But in, in doing all of these things, in sharing the hope that's within us, most people forget the last two things. In doing it with meekness and fear. Meekness. The whole idea there out of the Greek construct of the day was to take a wild horse and break his will enough to make him rideable. So everyone's got meekness as weakness, and that's the worst definition on the planet. Meekness is strength under control. Strength under control is awesome. Our Bible tells us that Jesus, our Lord, was meek. And yet when necessary, he fashioned a cord of whips and he drove everyone out of the temple. That's my Jesus. I tell people that all the time, you know, the big WWJD movement, you know. What would Jesus do? I always tell people, fashion a cord of whips and crack people in the hiney. <laughs> Wait for it is a, is a real possibility. Because he did so. Okay? Meekness. Be strong. Keep it under control. Fear. Not cowering in fear. That you would do things reverently, always honoring Christ, sanctifying him as Lord. See, apologetics is giving a reason or a defense for our faith in Jesus. Does the Bible command that? Over and over again. Over and over again. So let's, again, let's continue on here and let's see, let's see what good apologetics is. It's contending for the faith, but not like this guy. Let's, let's get rid of him. Just because the Bible tells us to contend for the faith, it doesn't mean be contentious. Amen? Just because the Bible calls us to contend for the faith, it doesn't mean be contentious. There's nothing worse today than the contentious Christians. Oh my goodness. Lord, save us from contentious Christians. The church would be a lot better off if we decided to stop being like this. Anyone ever run into this guy? Hey man, what are you doing for Christ, loser? I love these people. I've been saved for 35 years. What about you? I, I, 35 years, 35 seconds, so what? Let me tell you something. The last will be first and the first will be last. Go read that verse and understand the context. It's not about that. We need to stop this. People don't need two barrels of the shotgun in their face on every single issue. Jude 3, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What is so hard with that verse? Yeah, Jude is saying this much, all right? In the world of Christianity, we've got two hands. Follow the analogy. We've got timeless truth over here. And then we've got changing culture over here. Did any of you women wear head coverings today? Oh, but it's in holy writ. I can find it. For the angel's sake, you should all be covering your heads. Cultural. It was a cultural thing. Then there's timeless truths. Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory, God's only begotten Son. Whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So says Almighty God. There are things that we hold over here that are timeless truths. They don't change, and there's not a whole lot of interscholastic family debate. The timing of the rapture, uh, what we'll be doing in the millennial kingdom. Awesome, I like all those things, but they're open-handed issues for me. I don't break fellowship over that. I have tons of friends who are amillennialists, and I think that is the dumbest position in the world. There, I said it out loud. For, for 10 years, I've been saying it inside my skull, but I haven't really verbalized it too much. That is the worst position ever. So the word Chilion shows up like six times in Revelation 20. Yeah, it doesn't mean that. Oh my goodness, it doesn't mean that. We should start questioning every other time phrase that shows up in the Bible if it doesn't mean that. I like when things show up in the Bible that I can rest my hat on. I think that 
Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. I'm firm on that one because the Bible says so. I'm just as firm on that as the Lord Jesus rose from the dead three days after he was crucified because I'm big on time. If it says thousand year reign, then that's probably what it's going to be. But it's more of an open-handed issue that I don't think we should divide over. There's close hand. These over here, you can't argue on these. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Amen? Amen. Peter thought so. We agree with him. So we can contend for the faith without being contentious. We should also answer every question. Point number two, answer every question. Paul, writing to the Colossian church there, says in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Who here likes a savory meal? Right? Yeah, oh man, all the Italians are here, my people. Gonna have pasta today. Let's have some garlic bread with it. Make sure you got like some kind of like pecorino romano, just grate, grate it until it looks like it snowed on my plate. I like savory things. And if we're talking about it, pass the salt, please. The cardiologist is going to yell in the month, but you know, whatever. Our words should be seasoned with salt. It's a preservative. Not just that, but if you think about it, salt promotes thirst. Eat a, eat a big bag of Lay's potato chips watching a Sunday night football game. And I'll tell you, the next thing you want is a bottle of water. We should be the saltiest Christians out there. Adding flavor, adding savor, and promoting thirst in those around us. Answer every question. So we should contend for the faith. We should give answers. And you know what, brothers and sisters? People have questions. And the number one hang-up I think a lot of people have is, oh, I'm just not that smart. Don't ever, ever think that. Because a perfectly good answer to someone is, wow, that is a great question. Would you mind if I studied the Bible for a day or two and then we come back together again and have coffee on Thursday? And you give someone a couple days to ruminate and think about all the things that you know, you've been talking about already, and then you have enough Time to go and study. Hit the books. Get a great answer. Let Google be your guide. I was kidding. Let God be your guide. Get a good answer and then come back again. You need to not be afraid to show people that as Christians, we're not know-it-alls. I'm working on my fourth degree. I don't know it all. I don't know a lot of it. But we're in a place where we're all in flux. We're all learning together. Right? I wish every Christian had enough Humility to hang a sign around their neck. Work in progress. Right? The streets in New Jersey show us that. There's orange parking cones everywhere. It's the state tray. You know? Signs. Exit closed. Use next detour. Yeah. Work in progress. We're all works in progress. Let people see humility. You will attract a lot more people with humility than you will with arrogance. With arrogance, you will drive away. With humility, you'll draw people in. Hey, that's a great question. Let me do a little research. Let's get together again. But answers, having good answers. Good apologetics is also about reasoning. It's about reasoning with unbelievers. Acts 17, verse 16 and 17. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Man, that is a... Loaded verse. This is a loaded verse. Paul reasoned with people. First, he reasoned in a synagogue with believing Jews who had a theistic belief in the one true living God, but did not know Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. And then he also argued with Gentile worshipers, right? These were the proselytes to Judaism or people who were on the verge of being proselytes to Judaism. Then a third class of people and anyone in the marketplace. Those are your just flat out Greeks who probably were worshiping a pantheon of Greek gods. And what did Paul do? He reasoned with all of them. Reasoning. Doesn't the Lord say in Isaiah, oh, come let us reason together? Reasoning. And it's simply defending the gospel. 
Right to the point, Philippians 1.7, reading out of the English Standard Version, Paul said, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Well, brothers and sisters, if Paul was put here for the defense of the gospel, we should be here for the defense of it as well. Amen? So how do we remember this? Well, you can remember these four biblical truths by apologizing, by, by literally memorizing the little mnemonic device, the word card. C-A-R-D, which means you should contend for the faith, know how you ought to answer each person. Paul reasoned in the synagogues, and Paul said, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That's contend, answer, reason, defend. Super easy. I'm nothing if I'm not practical. Take these kind of things, write them in the leaflet of your Bible, and let God remind you. You should be willing to contend. You should always have an answer. Be willing to reason with people, okay? Don't just brush people off. Be willing to reason with them and know that you're put here for the defense of the gospel. So, in my opinion, and in the opinion of Norman Geisler, under who I've studied for three years, you just can't, just can't help a guy who's 86 years old, still teaching at the college level, has written over 90 books on apologetics and theology at this point in time. And the guy is like the energizer bunny of Christianity. He just won't be slowed down. Geisler said, apologetics is nothing more than pre-evangelism. It really is. In large part, in large part, apologetics is pre-evangelism. Our culture has shifted and changed in the last 10 to 15 years. A, a lot. In the 80s and 90s, you could hand someone a track and there's half a chance they'd read it and half a chance they believe it and half a chance they get saved. And if you hand someone a track today, they usually hand it back to you or throw it in the garbage when you turn around. Our culture has changed. We cannot effectively evangelize when we first pre-evangelize. We're living in an age of extreme disbelief. There cannot be the Son of God, the Word of God, miraculous acts of God, and the salvation of God unless there is a God. Therefore, evangelizing non-theists, which is most of the world, depends on first establishing the viability of biblical theism. And people always ask me, well, how much of the world is non-theistic in belief? Almost half of it. The Christianity segment there from a poll in 2015 said that 34% of the world are those who believe in Jesus of Nazareth. That means, like it or not, they probably lumped in Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholics, all kinds of different Christians, whether they be from the Greek Orthodox or Reformed or whatever, or Evangelical, that is the broadest, broadest percentage. And I tell people, I don't actually buy that statistic, but I put it up there because it's a world statistic, and I don't want to disrespect someone who did that much data. I think the number's probably on par with the Muslim number. It's probably 25 and 25. My own gut check and my own true belief and my own research would show me and lead me to believe about 25% of the world are true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how carnal or how spiritual they are. I'm not getting into that debate. All right? That's, again, that's an interfamily, interscholastic debate. 25% of the world believes the Lord Jesus is the Son of God. And I think probably 25% of the world adheres to the Holy Quran and believes in Allah. That means that half of the world is non-theistic in its belief system, not believing in any one true creator God, because that's the God of theism, the God who's created all, who sustains all, and who is personally involved in the world. Okay? There's only really three major theistic belief systems on the planet. Judaism, biblical Christianity, and Islam. Those are the three. Those are the three. So what do we have? A world that pretty much is opposed to the God of theism. So what about the role of apologetics in evangelism? Well, it's got really two stages. It's the pre-evangelistic role, and I believe that's to convince non-Christians to believe upon Christ Jesus. Acts 17, 2 and 4. He reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and some of them were persuaded. And then it's got a post-evangelistic role, and that is to confirm and strengthen followers of Jesus in our common faith. 
Luke 1, 4. Luke, writing to Theophilus there, says, It seemed good to me, O Theophilus, to write an orderly account to you, that you may have certainty concerning the things taught to you. That's to strengthen and confirm. And so what I really want to do is I want to spend a couple minutes and I want to look at what I call the pattern of Paul. And I think Paul, who had an amazing heart for world missions, is someone we can model. Amen? Paul started where people were. And this is a major thing in apologetics. Paul started where people were. When he talked to heathens, he used nature. When he talked to the Jews, he used the Old Testament. And when he talked to Greeks, he used logic and reason. To the heathen, nature. To the Jews, the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And to Greeks, logic and reason. Remember, and this is huge, and don't get offended, because I'm going to come off real strong with it. True love is giving someone exactly what they need, not what they want. We live in a culture today that says, I want you to give me everything I want. All right? I hate to say it. Today's culture is backwards on love. Love is accepting me for everything I am, everything I do, every ideology I hold to. Whether you agree with me or not, you love me by affirming me, undergirding me, and just coming and supporting me. (laughs) Wrong. Couldn't be more wrong. Worst definition ever. Non-biblical young people. You want to throw rocks at me later? I'm in the front. Silver SUV. That is not love. All right? Love is giving someone exactly what they need, not what they want. My son was a total pyro when he was little. Total. He saw a fire. He was towards it. To this day, he's 12, and he's still really bad. We're concerned. All right? And there's nothing my son would have loved more than a bag of M80s and an easy strike box of matches. Am I a good father if I give it to him and show him how to do it so he can blow his itty-bitty fingers off? Am I good? Am I a good father? No, I'm the worst father ever. I had another friend whose son loved to play in the toilet. You know, splashing around, whether or not it had been used or not, was just, that was optional for him. He just loved to splash his hands in the toilet. What should we say? Oh, it's okay, let him do it. It's not okay. It's not okay. That's not the definition of love. That's not the agapeo I see. The agapeo love in the Bible is being wholly given over to the good of another. Right? Being wholly given over to the good of another. It's the agonizing love, which is the word agony actually springs out of that. Most linguists believe. It's debatable. But I'll tell you this much. If you love, and I'll be personal, I have a teenage daughter and she's going to date eventually as much as it's going to kill me. And if I love my daughter, I set boundaries. You can go out with Johnny Football Star, but make sure it's chaperoned by people we trust and you're home by 9.30. And if the chaperones call me and say, hey, they ditched us and they never showed up at this movie, and all of a sudden it's 10.15, what's my heart doing? Freaking out? Whoever said it, amen to you. Freaking out? That's putting it mildly. All right? Wigging out is probably a little more on par calling everyone, getting in the car and driving around town. Why? I love my daughter. And follow me. I am wholly given over to her good. And I want the best for her. And I don't want her harmed. So that's what real love is. And that's why as Christians, evangelizing and telling people about the impending dangers of turning from God and rejecting Christ your whole life is the most loving thing you can do. That is the most loving thing you can do. All right? If you're you're hiking out in the desert and you see that there is a, a bridge that's out, right? I mean, and when I say it's out, it is busted. There is just like canyon and two posts of what used to be a bridge on both sides. And some knucklehead, probably a teenager, cut down the bridge outside because he thought it would be cool to hang it over his bed. If a car is zipping down the street, is it not the most loving and kind thing to jump out, throw rocks at him from afar, wave your hands, get in the middle of the road so you can stop him from driving over that fallen bridge? Yeah, apologetics is the same way. Evangelism is the same way. Guys, the bridge is out. 
and you're doing 110 towards it, stop, apply the brakes, turn around, stop. So Paul, he started where people were. Let's look at Acts 14, 17. This is to heathens. He, he again, he uses nature. He says there, he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That is picking up on one of the omnis of God, which is often overlooked. You have, you know, omniscience and, you know, omnipresence and you have all those omnis everyone keys in on, right? What about omnibenevolence? That's what no one wants to talk about. What about omnibenevolence? God is good to everyone on this planet. Sending rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. He is good to those who don't even deserve the good. He's that kind of God. He's awesome. Paul picks up on this again. He says in Romans 1, 19 and 20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. No one's got an excuse. No one can see, well, you know, if God really loved me, he would have showed up. How many times are you looking for him to show up? He's done so. Three major ways God reveals himself to this lost world is through nature. All right, go read Psalm 19. Heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork through nature. Paul picked up on that. He uses that in Acts 14. And then he revealed himself through the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. And then he revealed himself furthermore through the written word, the Holy Bible, all 66 books. Nature, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Bible. It's the witness of three. How many more witnesses do you need? That is God showing himself. That's it. How about when he talked to the Jews? Acts 17, the first part, verse A. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbaths day he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He is the Mashiach. He is your promised Messiah. And Paul went and he explained it to them, showing all the ways the Tanakh, the Old Testament scriptures, agree with Jesus' first advent, his coming in flesh. Tit for tat, hand in glove. Reasoning from the scriptures. Why? Because the Jews venerated Holy Scripture. And so that's what Paul used. What about when he was speaking with Greeks just a little bit later on, some 20 verses later. He says to them on the Areopagus, on Mars Hill there in Athens, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man. How about that? And to the poets and the philosophers of his day, he used their own poets and good reason and logic. Good philosophy working. Your own poets have said it. We are indeed God's offspring. We live and move and have our being in him. Well, then if that's true, it is impossible for God to indwell little rocks and carved statues. We ought not to think about God like that. So when he was before the heathens, he applied to nature. Right? When he was before the Greeks, he went to Holy Scripture. And when he was talking to the big thinkers of the day, he used reason and logic. And yet, a lot of Christians still have a huge objection towards apologetics. And I'll share a couple. Let's answer some objections. Objection number one, I hear this one all the time. People say, only the, only the Holy Spirit can save, not apologetics. So why even bother? It's okay. I'm okay when people want to object. I'm okay with that. I think answers are, are, are a great thing to questions. You have questions, I will always try and get you a good answer. But I've got a response for this one. That's true. I don't agree. I, I don't disagree. I agree it's the Holy Spirit. But I would push back gently that God can use sound evidence to convince people and turn to Christ and be 
saved. Almost no one believes something because they think it's irrational and without evidence. You ever meet anyone like that? Quick, what's the stupidest thing ever? I'll believe in that. You don't want to believe in something that has actually sound, logical evidence for it? We all want that. Almost everyone who believes anything is convinced that is the most rational for them to believe in. That's just it. That's the whole idea of how everything works. That's the whole idea about direct object. Does everyone know what the direct object means? What is the direct object of something? Like I said, what's the direct object of hearing? Because that's something you possess. We all possess hearing. Most of us, I'm sorry, that's, that wasn't insensitive. Most people can hear on the planet hearing. Right? So what's the direct object of hearing? It's sound. Some people say it's speech, but that's not true. It's sound. Sound exists, and the direct object, the direct correlation to it, is the ability to hear. So then what's the direct object of the ability of tasting? Uh, uh, uh. It's flavor. If we lived in a world where nothing tasted differently, we wouldn't have the ability to taste anything different. It's just that simple. What's the direct object of sight? You guys are starting to pick this up, I hope. Right? It's color. It's color. Because everything on the planet is different colors, we can see all kinds of different things. Now we're going to get hard. What's the direct object of, of your will? What's the direct object of your will? You ready? A lot of people get it wrong. It's the thing you perceive to be the best for you. It's the thing you perceive to be the best thing for you. What is the direct object of your mind? It's truth. It's truth. Try to picture right now in your right pocket a 16-inch purple elephant. And everyone says, that's so stupid, I can't picture it. I'm glad you can't because your mind doesn't conceive that. We know elephants weigh tons, not pounds. And you can't have a 16-inch one in your pocket because elephants walk around for 18 months pregnant, and when they're born, it is, it is an event. All right? You wouldn't put a baby elephant on your lap, let alone in your pocket. So then why don't people come to Christ sometimes? Because although they conceive with their mind, it is the truth. They do not believe with their heart and their volition, their will, that it is the best thing for them. I find this in college all the time when I do lectures and debates, especially at Rutgers. I had a guy tell me flat out, a Jewish guy, nice, nice young Jewish boy. We had a lot in common. And we're talking, and he says, I, I get it. I believe. I understand. I believe. And I'm thinking, like, hey, here it comes. This guy is going to get saved. He's going to put his faith in Christ. And he said, but, uh, but no deal. But thanks for coming. And I said, but you just told me you believed everything we've been going through and the lecture and it was all information. You, but you told me you believed it. And he goes, yeah, I believe it, but I'm gay. And I'm not going to break up with my boyfriend because I'm in love. And you see, that's where his will and his heart had a disconnect. Because though he believed something, he didn't perceive it to be the best thing for him. And that's how your will and your mind work together and not against each other. They work together. You have to believe the gospel and you have to perceive it to be the best thing for you before you get saved. Now look, good apologetics can lead a human soul to spiritual waters, but only the Holy Spirit can persuade him to drink them in. That's my opinion. Are apologetics useful? Absolutely. When used purposefully. Objection number two, the Bible is like a lion. It just needs to be... You know, it doesn't need to be defended, dude. It just needs to be let out of its cage. Anyone hear that one? Yeah, I get it all the time. What if a Muslim said that about the Quran or a Mormon about the Book of Mormon? Would you accept it or would you ask for some line of evidence? You see, we only fear lions because we have prior evidence that they're dangerous and powerful creatures. And if you were at the Bronx Zoo and they said, Attention, everybody. The female lionesses have broken free from the cage. Please calmly proceed to a nearest... You wouldn't even have to hear the word exit. You'd already be running or sprinting towards one. Because you think, I don't have to be the fastest dude in here. I just need to be faster than you. That's what you're thinking. Right? right selfishness just comes square out in the human heart. 
I don't got to be fast, just faster than you. Yeah, lions are dangerous, and we all know that. So, we need evidence that what looks like a lion is not merely someone dressed up like a lion. Animatronics are amazing today. Go to Sight and Sound. You'll swear there are animals on the stage if you're far enough away. We all need good lines of evidence. Everyone loves good lines for something to believe in. Objection number three, probably my favorite one. Paul tried apologetics on Mars Hill in Acts 17, but failed. So he never used them again. You see, this is just hard to believe for several reasons. I have a hard time buying this. And I know I need to tread, you know, very gently because there are some prominent Calvary Chapel pastors who teach this, and I lovingly disagree with them. I just lovingly disagree. I would say he had good success. Look at Acts 17.34. Some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysus, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Others with them is in the plural, so it's at least two, maybe more. So you're telling me Paul preaches on Mars Hill and four people place their faith, hope, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not success? What would we call that? Oh, that's not success. It's not success? The angels rejoice when one sinner repents. How about when four do it together? He had similar results here that he had elsewhere. Follow it up. Some mocked him, others believed, and others wanted to hear Paul speak more about the matter. Guys, this is the same success Paul had everywhere. Four, at least four people got saved. A bunch of people mocked him. I get mocked on a regular basis. I feel like I'm in good company with Paul. Others believed, and some people said, hey, you know what? We want to hear more about it. No one needs to seal the deal. Like, I feel like that's a big problem in Christianity today. Oh, man, if I don't seal the deal, oh, I can seal the deal. Got to get him to the sinner's prayer. Oh, my goodness. It's not a magical incantation, okay? It's faith that saves someone, not getting them to a magical prayer. Sometimes in a good conversation, the only thing you're going to do with someone is put a stone in their shoe. You're going to give them a little bit of information. You're going to tell them something about Jesus Christ that they never heard or never read on a website. And they're going to walk around all day long with a stone in their shoe thinking about it. And you know what? That's awesome. Because some, what? Some plant and other waters. And what? And God brings all the harvest. And God brings all the harvest. So do what you have to do. A secondary argument I have here is, is that Paul preached Jesus and the resurrection. Here And people say he didn't. Yes, he did. Of course he did. You see, Paul didn't use a different method here. He used apologetics as a means of pre-evangelism first. He removed some of their preconceived notions and their objections to Messiah Jesus. So why do apologetics? We already looked. The Bible commands it, right? Jude, Colossians, Acts, Philippians. And the culture demands it. We live in a time where relativism, pluralism, and naturalism, they all rule supreme. Relativism, no view is absolutely true. I always ask the relativists, are you absolutely sure? I'm just saying, if you say yes, you just left relativism. Pluralism says all views are relatively true. That's got laundry loads of problems with it. And naturalism is the belief that no supernatural view is actually true. You can't believe in anything supernatural, only in what you can taste touch, see, hear, and it's naturalism over the supernatural. Well, you should have a real hard time with how everything came here, because that's pretty supernatural. C.S. Lewis on apologetics. Lewis said, to be ignorant and simple now, not to be able to meet the enemies on their ground, would be to throw down our weapons and to portray our less educated brethren who have under God no defense but us against the intellectual attacks of the heathen, Good philosophy must exist, if for another reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. Great book, quoted from The Weight of Glory, page 50. That's why I named this whole lecture, The Need for Good Apologetics. So what are the problems we're facing today? Well, these are just a few of them. We are declaring absolute truth in relativistic times, an exclusive message to a pluralistic mindset, and a supernaturalistic view to an anti-supernaturalistic culture. But however, note this. We must address the various challenges of our culture before they are likely to accept the content of our message. 
And sometimes the old axiom is really true. People do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. All right? You can't argue anyone into the kingdom of God. But I'll tell you this much. You can love them in. You can love them in. And use some good evidence while you do it. Why do apologetics? The Bible commands it. The culture demands it. And I'd say the results confirm it. Reason led Einstein to posit a mind behind nature. He quoted, I'll quote this in his book, Here and Show Me God, page 66. Einstein said, The harmony of natural law reveals an intelligence of such superiority that, compared with it, all the systematic thinking and acting of human beings is an utter insignificant reflection. Let me sum it up in Jersey vernacular. All the stuff we done as humans ain't got nothing on God. Matter of fact, it's not worthy of a comparison. All right? It's like comparing one dropper, boop. That's my, that's my eyedropper sound. Boop, 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 boop. You know? You take one water out of an eyedropper and drip it into a cup. And then compare that to all of the great seas and oceans of the planet. Is there a comparison? That's water. That's so much more water. It's not a great comparison. We shouldn't even compare the intelligent works of humanity to the works of God. And I'm not saying that Einstein was a biblical theist. He really wasn't. He was more of a pantheist. But he took a, he took a look around at the world around him and thought, there's no way this all came about by big C, chance. No way. Noted atheist turned to God in his last days, John Paul Sartre. In a National Review, June 11, 1982, just shortly before his own death, he said, I do not feel that I am the product of chance, a speck of dust in the universe, but someone who is expected, prepared, and prefigured. In short, a being whom only a creator could have put here. He was an atheist for 99% of his life and had some real, real atheistic philosophy. And at the end of his days to turn and say this means that this guy thought and thought and thought about his own thoughts and then finally thought them wrong. Moral law leads an atheist to Christ. This is C.S. Lewis's story. No fabrication here. It's from his famous book, Mere Christianity, page 45. Lewis says, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. And the straight line equals absolute standards, absolute truth. You don't call this line crooked unless you have a comparison. You say, this is what a straight line is. Well, if you're calling one line crooked, you must have an idea of straightness. And Lewis said, if I'm calling something evil, then the converse is there is something good. Where did I get this concept of good? God has written the law on all of humanity's heart. And just like St. Augustine said, there's a God-shaped hole in each one of us. Last slide as we close down this morning. Noted former atheist returns to Jesus. This is from an interview with Dr. J. Budachowski. He wrote a book, Staying Christian in College. If you have young teenagers who are going to college, buy a case of them. All right? It's a great book from a great Christian. Near the end of the article, he says, What actually led me back to Christ was a growing intuition that my condition was objectively evil. Evil is a deficiency in good. There is no such thing as an evil substance, an evil in itself. So if my condition really was evil, there had to be some good of which my condition was the ruination. I had been so wrong for so long, so profoundly wrong, that it seemed that almost anything might be true, even the faith that I once abandoned as a young boy. And he came back to Christ. Reason and good thought let him back. So, why do apologetics? I think God's word commands it. 
I think the culture around us is also demanding it, and I think the results have confirmed it. My challenge to you is, are you willing to do it? And I would say in Christ, brothers and sisters, you can do it because you are more than conquerors. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.